Last time I taught on a Sunday morning, I taught uh, talked to you about your money, about your pocketbooks, and about a month later, half of you uh, lost about everything you were worth. Today I'm going to talk about your bodies, and I hope we're a little more fortunate this time. But all of us have a body, and it's important that we understand how to look at these things biblically. So I'd like uh, for you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we will start with verse uh, 16, and work our way through verse 10 of chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll begin with verse 16. Now, as you look at verse 16, you will realize that the first thing that Paul says about our bodies is that they're wearing out. He says in verse 16, second phrase, our outer man is decaying. Now, the outer man is just Paul's way of referring to the body. And he says this outer man, this body that we have, is decaying. Now, I can look around and see that some of you are more decayed than others, but, but every one of us, every one of us has a body that is right now in the process of decaying, is in the process of wearing out. It's the process of running out of strength and vitality, the beauty and the luster and the shine and the firmness and the trimness and the strength. All of that is gradually beginning to fade, or beginning to run out of steam. I noticed this uh, procedure for the first time in my life when I was about 25. Uh, it just seemed that when I hit 25, I just kind of went over the hill and the aches and the pains that I got from... Uh, I mean, you know, this is, this is traumatic for me. You know, the, the aches and the pains that I'd pick up playing ball would just seem to last longer and I just couldn't bounce back quite the way I did. And when I injured something, it hurt more and lasted longer and I began to realize this truth that Paul lays down as a just a universal reality is that the outer man is decaying now literally this probably ought to be translated our outer man is being destroyed the idea there's a passive idea here that something is happening to us that is causing this body to wear out now some of the things that caused Paul's body to wear out he lists back in verses 8 and 9 and it might be helpful to review those Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 4 that we are afflicted in every way. Now this is a word which simply means pressure. Paul says we are pressured in every way. The pressures, the difficulties, the hardships that we experience in life, the setbacks, the disappointments, these things cause the body to wear out. They not only affect us emotionally, but they affect us physically. And uh, psychologists and medical doctors are beginning to recognize this link between uh, internal pressure and external decay. And that's one of the things that happens to us. I looked at a chart this last week uh, by which life insurance companies figure life expectancy. And if you work at a desk job, you can just lock three years right off your life expectancy right now. And if you make more than $50,000 a year, you can chalk off another two. It's probably not a problem for most of you. But it's, a, but it's an awareness that this kind of pressure takes its toll on us physically. Now Paul says if we are perplexed, that is if we encounter times in which we are confused or bewildered, uh, we don't know what, what to do, we feel very much at a loss, we do not understand what's happening to us, well this also takes a physical toll on us. He says in verse 9, we are persecuted. 
That is, when we are ostracized, rejected, when we feel cut off, unwanted, unloved, this also takes a physical toll on us. And lastly, he says, we are struck down. And here Paul is referring to the times in our life when we encounter a tragedy of one sort or another. Maybe a, a very sudden and a very severe illness which catches us off guard. It may be the death of someone who is very close to us. Maybe a severe illness that someone in our family experiences. But these times of being struck down, they're also part of the forces at work which are wearing out this outer man, wearing out this body that we have. Now, we try through diet and exercise to sort of hold this process off, and some of us can slow it down better than others, but it's a battle that every one of us is going to lose. See, we can, we can uh, stave it off, but we can't beat it. Sooner or later, this outer decay is going to, to affect every one of us. Now, the, the normal response as humans, when we look in the mirror and we see things uh, bulging and sagging and that didn't used to, is, is to get discouraged. Okay? This can be, uh, become a source of, of unhappiness and it can become a source of even depression as you begin to lose the youthfulness and the beauty and the handsomeness that we, uh, that we once had. And it can be a real blow to your self-esteem if you are used to counting upon your looks or your athletic ability for your sense of worth. When these things begin to fade, then your whole sense of worth begins to crumble. What's going to happen when you're young, too? My best friend in college told me that the biggest uh, blow to his self-esteem is when he got uh, braces and horn-rimmed glasses in the same week. Said, uh, said, I like to never recovered from that. So if you've, ever, if you've ever looked in the mirror and you've been unhappy with what you've seen, then Paul has a word for you in this passage. Now, just in case some of you are not sure whether your outer man is decaying or not, I came across a little test last week that you can apply in the quiet of your own heart and see if you qualify. This is how to know that you're getting older. You can tell if you're getting older if your knees buckle but your belt won't. It's one side. You can know that you are getting older if dialing long distance wears you out. You know you're getting older if your back goes out more than you do. And these are my two favorites. You can know that you're getting older if a fortune teller offers to read your face. <laughs> and you can know you're getting older if you sink your teeth into a good steak and they stay there. <laughs> but at any rate, this process is happening to all of us and we need to know how to handle this when and if it occurs to us, and it will. Now, Paul's response to this is in the first phrase in verse 16. He says, although the outer man is decaying, we do not lose heart. Paul says, even though I see this process at work in my own life, I am not discouraged, I'm not depressed, my self-esteem isn't shattered by this. We do not lose heart. Now he gives us two reasons in this passage why he doesn't lose heart when he sees the outer man decaying. The first reason is in verses 16 through 18, and the second reason is in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. Let's look at the first reason. He gives it in the end of verse 16. He says, Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. 
So Paul says, I'm not discouraged when I see the outer man decay because I realize that the inner man is not decaying. But instead of wearing out the inner man, that is the unseen part of me, my character, the inner part of me, rather than wearing out, that is becoming renewed every day. Every day it's being made stronger, more healthy, more vital. It's becoming more alive. It's rejuvenated every day. So as I daily see the body beginning to wear out, I also at the same time daily see an internal renewal taking place. And so I'm not discouraged when I see the outer man decay. Now he explains in verse 17 how this process works. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now what Paul says there is that the very pressures that cause the body to wear out are the very things that cause the inner man to be renewed. The very things that are wearing us out physically are the very things that are causing us to be renewed, rejuvenated, and built up in the inner man. So Paul says, I'm not discouraged. Now, if you want to see the kinds of things that Paul describes as momentary and light, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 for a moment. Look in verse 23. This is a list of things that Paul describes as momentary light affliction. Start in the middle of verse 23. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's with rocks, by the way. Three times I was... Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I get the idea he was in trouble here. As I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. And that's what Paul is describing as momentary light affliction. Now you notice the contrast that he draws here in verse 17. He says the affliction is momentary, whereas the glory that is produced is eternal. He says that the affliction is light, and what is produced has weight. It's a weight of glory. It has substance. And it's affliction, that is hardship or pressure, that is producing this glory. Now Paul's point here is that this pressure produces this internal glory. And here I'd suggest we think of glory in its original sense of brilliance or radiance or beauty. In other words, these external pressures are producing internal brilliance, internal splendor. They are making us into beautiful people. And Paul says that it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's the last phrase in the verse. This glory is far beyond all comparison. 
In other words, the glory that is produced by these afflictions far outweighs the afflictions themselves. It's as if we experience 10 units of affliction and received 100 units of inner beauty as a result. So Paul says that's why it doesn't discourage me. These outer things may be wearing down the body, but I am getting a tremendous bargain in the deal. My inner man is growing daily into a more splendorous and more beautiful creature. So for that reason, I'm encouraged. Some of you may have read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and in that story you remember that uh, there's one scene in which Traveler goes into this room, and there is a fire blazing in the fireplace. And the fire is blazing away, and it's growing brighter and brighter, and at the same time, there is a guy standing in front of this fire and he's dumping buckets of water on this fire. Just unloading gallons of water. And yet this fire just keeps burning brighter and brighter. And at first glance, he can't understand what's going on until he walks around behind the fireplace and there he sees a secret agent secretly pouring oil onto that fire. So despite the best efforts of this man in the front of the fireplace to put it out, it just keeps blazing brighter and brighter. And Paul says, my life is like that. See, I'm encountering things externally which seem geared to put the fire out, and yet internally a process is at work, and more and more brilliance, more and more radiance, more internal beauty is being produced. Now this process is not automatic. Uh, all of us know people who are decaying on the outside, and they're decaying on the inside right along with it. It isn't automatically true that affliction produces glory. And Paul tells us what the conditions are in verse 18. There's first of all a negative condition. He says this is true, this process of renewal takes place while we look not at the things which are seen, that's the negative condition, but positively at the things which are not seen. This word look here is the word that we get uh, our English word scope from, as in microscope and telescope. And it has to do with the focus, what we fix our eyes on, what we are preoccupied with, uh, what the focus of our attention is, what is our gaze fixed on. And Paul says, if our gaze is fixed on the things that are seen, then this process of inner renewal will not take place, but will decay inwardly as we decay outwardly. So first of all, he says, we have to avoid a preoccupation with the things that are seen. Now, I think in America, uh, one of the main things that would fit under this category in the 1970s and 80s is the body itself. And in context, I think that's what Paul is talking about. That if we are preoccupied with our bodies and our physical condition, if that's what consumes our interest and our attention, then this process of inner renewal is not going to take place. Uh, I read in this last uh, month an article on National Magazine about the the physical fitness craze in uh, the states. Uh, Seventy million of us, that's better than uh, just about a third of us, are involved in some kind of regular exercise program. There are about 5,000 health clubs in the United States uh, at which we spend about $3 billion a year. We spend $2 billion on bottled water. I didn't know if you knew that per year. And all told, when you add everything up, we spend $30 billion a year on diet and exercise, all of it geared to maintain this body. See? I suggest that's preoccupation. That is focusing on the things that are seen. Now, I'm not saying we ought to 
neglect our bodies or ignore them. You know, I've often heard the maxim with that's uh, uh, geared for be a guideline for women in applying makeup. If the barn needs painting, paint it. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying that we ought to ignore our bodies or neglect them, but we're not to be preoccupied with them. I'm convinced that the that, that one of the current false gods in our culture, one of the ways in which we practice idolatry is to worship the human body. And the place, the temples where we worship these human bodies are the uh, fitness centers and the health spots of America. Next year they anticipate that they will sell 300 million square feet of new mirrors to install in health clubs where people can go and worship the human body. Now Paul says we've got to avoid that kind of preoccupation as Christians. Uh, the way Paul put it in 1 Timothy 4 is that bodily discipline is only little profit. That is, there is profit there, but it's little compared to the profit that comes through godliness. And we must be careful to maintain that perspective. Now, the positive condition to this kind of internal renewal is that we look at the things which are not seen. That is, the things which are not seen are those, the invisible realities and resources that govern life and enable us to live it. God and His truth and His resources. I came across an article in a magazine this last year. It was written by a, a young woman who was suffering from a very uh, malignant form of cancer. And uh, her life was threatened. She was uh, young, less under 30 years of age, had her whole life in front of her. And this form of cancer was threatening her life. And for a period of about eight months, there was a great deal of uncertainty as to whether or not uh, she would live. And during this time, she had to do battle with the fact that her outer man was decaying more rapidly than most. Well, how is it that she was able to maintain, to, uh, to not be overwhelmed and discouraged? Well, it was by looking at the things which are not seen. And I called a couple of uh, passages from that article which I thought were particularly illustrative of the attitude that she carried through this experience. While she was doing battle with cancer, this is one of the things that she said, that my thoughts kept returning to what I had been learning of his character. In him resided no evil intent for my life. He was ultimately sacrificially concerned for my very best. He is a God of pure, unselfish love. And this situation, this cancer, was a real, if mysterious, expression of his love. And then later, in a particularly difficult moment, she put on a, a favorite song, and these are the thoughts that went through her mind when she listened to the comfort in that song. At that moment, I felt that God understood my tears completely, but he was also quietly promising that even this would in some way eventually work out for the best, his and mine. By choosing to believe his love on a daily basis, I experienced special comfort and reassurance. Well, see, that special comfort and reassurance, that's the renewal of the inner man. And that comes by focusing on the things that are unseen. Now, our situation may not be as severe. Our bodies may be healthier. But at the same time, the principle still applies that internal renewal comes from focusing on the things which are unseen, not the things which are seen. So that's Paul's first reason for not being discouraged. While the outer man decays, there is a great process of internal renewal taking place. Now the second reason he gives us for not being discouraged is in verse 1 of chapter 5. 
He says, I'm also not discouraged because we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What is this earthly tent that he is talking about? Well, clearly it's a reference to the human body, the bodies that you and I are inhabiting right now. Paul describes them as an earthly tent. That is, it's a tent that's suited for living on earth. It's like I've heard someone describe it as an earth suit. Our bodies are earth suits, which help us to navigate the environment we find here on earth. But Paul describes it as a tent. And any of you that have been camping know that a tent is a temporary dwelling place. It's never designed to be a place where you set up home. See? When you're through camping, you pull up the tent pegs and throw them in the bag, fold up the tent, throw it in the car, and head home. And Paul says our bodies are like that. And he also says that when this tent is torn down, in other words, someday the stakes are going to be pulled up, the tent's going to be rolled up and packed away, that's going to happen. He says when this earthly tent is torn down, Paul says we have a building from God. Well, what is this building from God that we have? Well, it's the new resurrection body that we will receive when the Lord returns. When we die, Paul says, we have a building that is a new body, which is a building. It's a permanent place to dwell. And it doesn't have any of the defects of this body. So Paul says, that's the second reason I'm not discouraged. Not only is there a great process of internal renewal taking place through the very things that destroy the body, but secondly, when this body wears out, I have a brand new one to replace it. So it doesn't discourage me or depress me that this one is wearing out. When I was a, a kid, I used to love to watch uh, Wide World of Sports. Every week I'd watch Wide World of Sports. I think my, my, favorite, uh, my favorite event was when they covered the Demolition Derby. And I don't know if you've ever seen one, but uh, there are grown men who get in these cars and just bash them to bits. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen. But they just, uh, you know, these cars are bouncing off of walls and off of each other and turning over and radiators are blowing and catching on fire, fenders are falling off, doors are being stripped. It's a tremendous thing to watch. But, but if, you, if you see these guys, when, um, when their cars uh, stop running, right, when that radiator finally gives out, radiator hose busts and their car stops, that's not the end of the world. They just hop out of that beat up old wreck walk out of the Colosseum and step in a brand new Porsche 928 and motor off. And Paul says, that's exactly what's going to happen to me. I'm driving around a battered wreck and one day, one day it's going to stop running. But that's no problem because I know I've got a brand new model, unscarred, it's going to last for eternity and that's what I'm going to drive off in. So to see this thing fall apart doesn't depress me, doesn't discourage me. Now in verses 2 through 4, Paul tells us why God gives us this new body. He says, Indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And in this body, Paul says we groan. Most of you 
probably got some confirmation of that fact at about uh, 7.30 or 8 o'clock this morning when you rolled out of the sack. And that's one of the reasons God wants to give us a new body. He knows that we groan in this body. He knows that this body is inadequate as a permanent place to live. When uh, my wife and I moved to Boise, we moved into an apartment, and we'd lived in apartments for five years of our marriage, our entire married life, and I very much wanted to move Debbie into a house because I knew the limitations of an apartment and the frustrations that she felt in setting up house in a small apartment. And I wanted to find a permanent place for her to set up residence. And that's what God is doing with our new body. He says, I realize that the body you have now is limited. It's not really suited as a permanent place to dwell. And I understand that. So I've prepared a permanent building for you to move into. Now, Paul also compares our current situation to, uh, to nakedness. He says, in this body, we are naked, and we long to have this nakedness, nakedness clothed with our, our new clothing, our new suit of clothes from God. And this is uh, suggestive, by the way, that, that ever since uh, the experience of our first parents in the garden, when they put on those fig leaves, that ever since then, when we put on clothes we are expressing subconsciously a desire to receive our new bodies. If you're like me, you've got some clothes for Christmas this year, and you put those hummers on and stand in front of the mirror, and you feel pretty slick, you know, you feel like you're hot stuff. And, and that suggests to me that that is just, just a foretaste of the delight that we will experience when we're able to put on that new body, see, the one that we're going to carry with us. And God knows that. He wants the mortal, that is, this thing which is falling apart, to be swallowed up by life, so he's prepared a new body for us. But that's still to come. Now, how do we know that God's going to come through with this new body? Well, Paul tells us we have an assurance in verse 5. He says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose, that is, to inhabit these new bodies, is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. The word pledge there, if you look in your margin, simply means down payment. The Holy Spirit is, is God's down payment. And those of you that have bought a home know that when you put a down payment down on a house, that you secure title of the property, and it obligates you to make further payments to hold on to it. And Paul says the Holy Spirit is God's down payment, that when he, when he placed the Holy Spirit within us, he was securing title to the property. He was saying, you're mine. I've, I've bought you. And he was also obligating himself to further payments. There are more installments to come. And God, by giving us a down payment, has promised us that he's going to come through with the final payment. And that's the new body. So we can know that it's coming. Now, as Paul thinks back on this, as he thinks back on the fact that despite this external decay, there's a great process of internal renewal taking place daily. And as he thinks about the fact that he has a new body waiting for him when this one wears out, there are three attitudes that he expresses in verses 6 through 10 as a result. The first attitude is a sense of optimism and confidence. He says, knowing this, in verse 6, therefore we are always of good courage. And again in verse 8 he says the same thing, we are of good courage. That is, uh, the first response Paul says in my heart is to be optimistic, to be uh, encouraged, to be assured, to experience a renewed sense of confidence and, and rest. No longer 
discouraged, defeated by these things, but I'm, I'm confident, I'm optimistic, I'm looking forward. Now the second attitude he expresses in uh, verse 8, he says back in verse 6, we know that while we are at home in the body, and notice we're at home in the body, we're comfortable in this thing, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That is, our walk now is by faith in an unseen Lord, not by sight. Okay? We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So Paul says the second attitude I have in response to this truth is that my desire is to be at home with the Lord, the one who is going to give me this new body to indwell for eternity. I don't know if you're, if you're like me, but this has never, never rung much of a responsive chord in me before. I, I have read repeatedly Paul's statements that he would much rather be with Christ, he longs to be with Christ, I've sung hymns that have expressed that same kind of idea. And it really never has done much for me because I kind of like it where I'm at. You know, I enjoy what I'm doing now and I like life and I like white Christmases and I like being where I'm at. So it's never meant that much to me. But as I began to think about this passage, what occurred to me is that every time I groan in this body, every time this body is asked to do something that it can't do, Every time it gets sick or begins to ache and I wish it would get better, see, what I'm doing is I'm expressing a desire to be with the Lord because he's the one that's going to set that right. So Paul says, the more I realize that God's the one that puts all this right, the more I long to be with him. And that's the second attitude as a result. Now the third attitude that results from this understanding is in verse 9. He says, therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, that is, whether at home with him or absent from him in the body, to be pleasing to him. So the third thing Paul says this does for me is it creates in me an ambition, a moving desire to be pleasing to the Lord. Now, there are two reasons for this ambition. The first one we've already touched on in verse 8. The first reason Paul desires to be pleasing to God is that or to Christ is that that's where he prefers to be because I want to be pleasing to him now because my preference is to be with him that's where I'd really rather be is with him therefore I want to please him and that's why I behave myself when I'm away from my wife I'd really much rather be home with her she's the one I want to please so I behave myself when I'm away because that's where I'd really rather be Paul says it's the same thing here and then the second reason he gives us for wanting to please the Lord is in verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the second reason that he longed, had an ambition to be pleasing to Christ, is he knew that one day Christ was going to evaluate everything that he'd done in the body and what he had done in this body that was wearing out see, what he had done in this body would be rated would be evaluated by the Lord as to whether it was good or bad and this word that's translated bad here could just as easily be translated worthless that's the idea we're going to be recompensed Paul says for the deeds we've done in the body whether they are good 
or whether they are worthless. That is, we can do things in this body that are worthless. They're, they're trivial. They're insignificant. And Paul says, I want my life to count. When it's finally evaluated by the judge, I want to, I want to get an A. He says, I want to, be, uh, to find that my life was significant, that it counted, it wasn't wasted, it wasn't trivial, it wasn't insignificant. And I know that the way in which that's the, that I'll obtain that kind of approval from Christ is to live now in this body with an ambition to be pleasing to Him, to have that be the thing that motivates me and drives me. That occurs to me as we, as we think back through this passage that this is really the question that, that we're left with, is to ask ourselves in our own hearts this simple question, what is my ambition? In this body, what is it that I want to do more than anything else in this body? Is it, uh, do I want to achieve some kind of uh, success in my chosen field? Is the, is the burning ambition I have the thing that drives me, that keeps me awake at night? Is it to be a financial success, to be wealthy? Is uh, my ambition the thing that motivates me to be popular, to be well-liked, to be accepted? Is that what drives me? Uh, is it... Um, a burning desire to, uh, to, to look good, to dress uh, in a way that's attractive and appealing. Is that my ambition, to be good-looking on the outside? Yeah. Paul says, my ambition, that's above all of those, is to be pleasing to him. This is a time of year when a lot of us are considering New Year's resolutions, and if uh, you're anything... Uh, like people I know, uh, somewhere near the top of that list of New Year's resolutions, you're going to be dealing with diet and exercise somewhere in there. And most of you are probably going to plan to go on a diet this year. And most of you are going to plan to start some kind of exercise program. Well, I think what Paul is suggesting here is that at the top, at the very top of that list of New Year's resolutions, ought to go this ambition, right in the top spot. My ambition is to be pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come before you today as people who are aware of our own uh, frailty and mortality. We're aware of the weaknesses of our bodies. And we desire, Lord, to handle this, uh, this reality with maturity and with your perspective. We ask that you would help us to maintain the proper focus as we think about our bodies, that you would enable us to... Uh, to have a scriptural uh, view and a scriptural perspective of this. Free us from being preoccupied with uh, our, uh, our looks and free us to instead to be preoccupied with the things that are unseen, the things that last for eternity, not the things that will fade. And help us above all uh, create in us a desire, an ambition to be pleasing to you, to live lives that satisfy you and, and meet your approval above all else. We ask you to help us with that. Amen. Lord, we do want to thank you as we go from here that you have...